The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to bring our listeners Mr. Taylor Brorby. He is an award-winning essayist and poet. His work has been featured in North American Review, Orion, and the Huffington Post. Taylor Brorby is the author of Crude, Poems, Coming Alive, Action, and Civil Disobedience, and he is co-editor of Fracture, Essays, Poems, and Stories on Fracking in America. His most recent book is Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, and he is presently the Annie Clark Tanner Fellow in Environmental Humanities and Environmental Justice at the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me, Melinda. I was so glad to learn about your work because as a dietitian and someone who's interested in making sure we have access to clean and safe water and food to eat, as well as climate change and how that impacts the way we can produce our food, I was very interested in your coverage specifically of fracking in North Dakota. You grew up in center North Dakota Paint me a picture of what that place is like. It is almost exactly right in the middle of the continent where the eastern half of the United States that is luscious and green starts to bend towards brown. It's an ocean of sky and a sea of prairie that when the wind blows just right, it whispers to you. It is also a hot spot for coal mining, strip coal mining in Oliver County, which is where Center is, and two surrounding counties. So I grew up with one skyscraper in my county. It was a massive multi-story smokestack for the coal-fired power plant where my mother spent the entirety of her career. And just so listeners know, Center is the county seat of Oliver County. 600 people are there. There is no stoplight in the county. There is no grocery store in the county. So it is about as rural as rural gets. You write about the symphony of grasses and the smell of silver sage. And there has been a lot of recent exploitation in that state in an effort to get at more fossil fuel. So your dad, as well as your mother, worked in the fossil fuel industry How did they get to center North Dakota? It is where they grew up. I'm actually the fourth generation of my family, though I don't work in the fossil fuel industry. Cousins do. And it originates with my grandfather in the very northwest corner of the state called Divide County. He originated this with coal mining. His son, my father's father, was a coal miner there as well. And in the 60s, coal was discovered in south-central North Dakota. And these small, small towns became company towns because people from the northwest corner of the state 
migrated to start building these coal-fired power plants. And so my father inherited that as well, building ethanol plants in Iowa and North Dakota and coal-fired power plants as well. And before he retired, ended up working big rigs in coal mining, whereas my mother spent her career sort of as the administrative assistant end of things at the local coal-fired power plant. Well, I want to read something that you wrote in Boys and Oil that I thought was stunningly on point. You write, though you don't see it that way, you become a pawn in someone else's story, a story of that's the way it is. This is the way it has to be. Theological violence wrought upon the prairie is propelled by powerful men destroying lives to line their own pocketbooks. What was it exactly that led you to this conclusion? I think where that originated for me was community-based pancake benefit meals in childhood. It seemed every other weekend we were going to the basement of some church or to the civic center to raise funds for Farmer Johnson's cancer treatment because in my part of the world, many people do not have health insurance, for instance, and we don't have a system that wants us to be healthy. And if you grow up around extractive sites, it compromises your health, both because of air quality, water quality, soil quality, It can create endocrine disruptions that can trigger type 1 diabetes. And since we don't have universal health care in this country, Farmer Johnson usually wouldn't have insurance. And so we would raise our piddly $10,000 as a good community gesture towards this because the people in power, from my vantage point, don't want to pay their fair share to transform the society we live in to make it more compassionate and caring to people elsewhere. You know, it's a mark of pride to break your body on the land where I grew up. Or, you know, you might be getting paid what on the surface feels like a decent paycheck if you're working at the coal mine, for example, or the power plant. But what has to lurk in the back of one's mind is I need a large retirement account so that when cancer comes knocking, because how can it not when you grow up swimming like I did in a lake that never freezes in North Dakota because the water has to be used to cool the coal-fired turbine engines? You need to have a large sum of money so that when you get a massive medical bill, it doesn't ruin you at the end of your life. And I think that's part of what I'm getting at in that sentence is that the lure of money rather than the attraction of transforming the systems that subjugate us is part of the American dream. Because we're tiny, we're individuals, we can't take on singularly by ourselves the systems that oppress us. It's only through being united in unions or in communities to demand political justice, social justice, that these things change. You're reminding me of a meeting that you attended in Ames where there was discussion about a pipeline that was going to be going through Iowa. This is part of a larger pipeline that's going to be going through multiple states in the Midwest. And there are two sides in the room. 
there's the union workers, and these are the folks that want the pipeline because it's going to bring jobs. And then there are people who have been labeled the environmental activists who are speaking about, just as you mentioned, the fact that we are fracturing this land, we're exploiting the land and the people, and you're saying, no, let's wait, let's take a different approach and look at all of the unintended consequences that are going to go along with those highly praised jobs. Part of what is so clear as crystal in my mind about the times in which we exist is we haven't really liberated ourselves in this country from feudal Europe. That day in Boone County, Iowa, the exact halfway point of the Dakota Access Pipeline, at the time the country's largest oil pipeline capable of carrying 25 million gallons of Bakken crude oil a day from North Dakota to Patoka, Illinois, where it would then be shot south to the Gulf for refinement and distribution on the world market. It was pitting two groups of peasants against each other, landowners or people who care about important things like topsoil and water, against people with other very real concerns, union workers who are dependent on jobs to help put bread and butter on their family's table. Who wasn't in the room was the actual corporation. Energy transfer partners wasn't there because the tactic has been learned and for centuries has been effective. You just pit two disadvantaged groups against each other and then you create a narrative there. Ultimately, the company is still going to win because under George W. Bush's administration, there was a thing created called the Halliburton loophole that you could then use eminent domain, that is taking of private land or goods and moving it into the public commons for the universal good. This happened, just for an easy example, with the interstate system. Interstates sort of benefit the country. They help move goods quicker, more directly. So farmers or landowners were compensated for that. Now it's different since oil and natural gas are considered what's called a public necessity and good because we've built a civilization that's dependent on these. You can declare eminent domain and take land to build pipelines, even at the risk of those pipelines breaking and ruining topsoil or spilling into the water. So Iowa farmers or landowners didn't really have a choice. You could sign over your land to energy transfer partners and get paid a higher wage, or you could wait for eminent domain to be declared and then get paid a less wage, but it would be taken anyway. We know that phrase by another <laughs> term, coercion. Right. You're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because it's going to be taken anyway. But since the power structure isn't in the room, the people who actually have power, the corporation, it all becomes rather futile because you're arguing against someone that's on the same level of you rather than addressing those in power. And I love the way you explain these two groups separated can't possibly come together and so can't possibly win. Not under that system as it's currently displayed. I mean, I think that's what United States history has taught us. The only time things change are when people come together and put pressure on the political system and the people in power. But up until that point, things do not change. Right. 
What I remember about one of the farmers, Steve Jensen, the impact of, at the time, the largest inland oil spill from this pipeline and the effect on his farmland, I cannot imagine what kind of toll that took on Mr. Jensen. It was a huge moment, and just for clarity, it, it technically wasn't this pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline. It was a much smaller pipeline. So the Dakota Access Pipeline is 36 inches in diameter. The pipeline that ruptured on Mr. Jensen's farm was 9 inches. And what happened was lightning struck, and the oil released to the tune of about 865,000 gallons, which is hard to fathom, but a way of imagining that is seven football fields worth of oil across a farmer's land. And for years, they had to clean it and filter it and sort through the soil. But of course, that soil is never the same. And you might say, well, Mr. Jensen gets a multi-million dollar settlement sort of claim. Any landowner I know, though, cares more about his or her topsoil than about money that's attached to it because the real wealth is in the health of the soil rather than when it's poisoned. Exactly. Taylor, let me take one break because we are halfway through. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Taylor Brorby. He is an award-winning essayist and poet. He has written multiple articles that talk about the exploitation of the land. He is most recently the author of Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land, and he is now the Annie Clark Tanner Fellow in Environmental Humanities and Environmental Justice at the University of Utah. I want to go back to Mr. Jensen because I want to know who paid to clean up that soil, if it can even be cleaned up, and what about the water quality? Who was monitoring that and cleaning it up for the people in that region? Tesoro is who ultimately had to, it was a Tesoro-owned pipeline, their responsibility. And what happens with monitoring water in North Dakota is anyone's guess in many ways. In 2016, now this is already six years ago, and the Bakken oil boom, of course, has busted, though oil is still being extracted from that part of the world, just not at the rate it once was between 2006 and 2014 was the real sort of explosion. In 2016, a Duke University study confirmed that the Missouri River is radioactive. The Missouri River, of course, waters the breadbasket or whatever we imagine the breadbasket to be. You know, it feeds all the way down where you are in Missouri. It connects with the Mississippi and if you think 10 million people rely on that river alone for drinking water and they're drinking compromised water because every oil, chemical, and saltwater spill in western North Dakota finds its way to the Missouri River. All small creeks flow into that river. It's a compromised part of the world in terms of water quality. I'm very concerned about how all of these extractive processes affect our water and our ability to feed ourselves on good quality soil. I wanted to talk about when fracking first came to North Dakota. The industry moved into very small towns, and these towns experienced exponential growth. Tell me how 
the fracking industry impacted your community and other communities in North Dakota? It transformed them. I mean, I can think of a small town no one's ever heard of in western North Dakota named Watford City. When I left the state in 2006 to go to Minnesota for college, that town was about a 1,000 people. And then when the boom came, that town doubled in size every two years from 2006 till 2014. At its height, it was somewhere north of 10,000 people. Now, 10,000 people doesn't sound like a huge town, but in that period of time, it means you need more roadways, you need more hotels, you need more houses, you need more gas stations and grocery stores and EMTs. And so there was just such an explosion in these communities. Williston went from 14,000 people to over 45,000 people in the same period. Dickinson, North Dakota, same population numbers there too, and Minot, roughly the same as well. The early 20-teens, the most expensive place to live in the country was not Manhattan. A 700-square-foot apartment in Williston, North Dakota, cost you $2,500 a month. People were renting ranch houses from anywhere from four to $8,000 a month. So it drives out long-term residents who can no longer afford the cost of living in these places. Property taxes go up, for instance. And it also, because of the lack of infrastructure, creates a prime opportunity for increasing drug and human trafficking. I mean, the Fort Berthold Reservation during the main part of the boom, one reservation upriver from Standing Rock, had three law enforcement officers in a county basically the size of the state of Rhode Island. It becomes easy to traffic indigenous women when that's the low number of law enforcement as well. So these are side effects or byproducts of a booming economy because it's like being in a hornet's nest and trying to do a daily yoga session. It just doesn't quite work. There's so much activity and pain associated with being in that sort of maelstrom situation. So is this level of growth still continuing? No, it is not. In 2014, oil plummeted. Halliburton that summer alone laid off 7,000 workers. There's still oil being extracted there. And I've been wondering about this with climbing prices of gas in this country, if we'll start seeing a resurrection of hydraulic fracking. However, in that part of the world, the oil that is left there is are not like in Saudi Arabia, for instance. They're not reservoirs or large lakes of oil underground. It's more if you can think of like when you get to the end of sipping soda out of an ice-filled glass and there's still little squiggly spots of soda between the ice cubes. It's more like that. It's why fracking is so expensive because it's harder to get at that oil. I see. Well, you write that you have a Bakken project file. Can you tell me some of the information that you've been collecting about that particular project and other sites of fossil fuel extraction? Yeah, I'm sort of the oddest person in this way. I don't take vacations. I just go and live in extractive economies. I think West Virginia, for instance, is one of the most beautiful states I've ever been to. Trees grow 
horizontally out of mountains. For some reason, we're blowing up those mountains and streams. There are the color of blaze orange hunting gear because of tailing mine runoffs and things like this. Or I go to the Olympic Peninsula, which is the world's capital for logging and clear-cutting. But in these files that I've been keeping on western North Dakota, it's been more documenting the rate of oil spills, what size those are. But I will say the North Dakota Department of Mineral Resources has now stopped sharing that for the past several years, the rate of oil spills and the size of them. There used to be a map that would list anything from a one-gallon spill or larger, and you could track these sorts of things. But I'm also trying to now, since we're 16 years after that boom has started, to see if there's any way to get access or if someone's keeping track of this about increased cancer rates, for instance, because the flaring of natural gas is such a huge part of this. You know, at the height of the boom, North Dakota gave off as much light pollution as Minneapolis-St. Paul, but it wasn't from cities. It was from the flaring of natural gas since that is valued less than crude oil. It was more economically advantageous to keep developing oil wells quickly and just burning off natural gas rather than adapting technology to capture it on site. So if you're breathing in burned natural gas that's wafting on the air, We have to think that that increases cancer rates, though cancer takes a while to develop. So these are some of just the questions and areas I'm trying to keep tabs on and doing a little bit more work to find some information. But it's proving to be quite hard. I'm sure. Well, I do know that there has been research looking at birth defects in areas where there's been fracking. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're exposed to these extractive chemicals, we have to expect that there will be an impact on our lives. So I'm curious about your fellowship. Tell me what you're doing with that. So I'm at the University of Utah at the Tanner Humanities Center this year. And part of the project I'm working on here is starting to do research on type 1 diabetes, which I am a type 1 diabetic, which is different from type 2, which is more lifestyle-driven. Type 1 diabetics have a genetic predisposition that then becomes triggered due to an endocrine disruptor at some point in their life that then makes their pancreas stop working. And I'm doing like a Siddhartha Mukherjee who wrote The Emperor of All Maladies and sort of traced 3,500 years of human experience with cancer in a similar way in my project with diabetes. So it's primarily a memoir, doing things like I was sent to diabetic camp, for instance, when I was six and seven, and also tracing our 3,500-year understanding of diabetes, where it originated, how we understood it, how insulin was located in the pancreas, while also making forays into big agriculture and into climate change because part of what I think my body experiences through what my blood sugar is doing, to my mind, is clearly reflected in what the planet is going through right now due to climate change. So it's a way of trying, I guess, to focus in on disability, which is one of our last great social justice issues to really come to the forefront 
and to say this is a lens through which to understand the ecological moment that we're currently living in. I was so grateful to receive several articles that you had written and essays in preparation for this interview. And my favorite was titled In Range, Blood Sugar Levels and Other Readings from an Enumerated Life. It was from Orion Winter of 2021. But you describe how the same kind of ravages that have occurred in your body are also occurring on the land. And of course, they are connected. They are, in my mind, that to understand a diabetic body, our lives are driven by numbers about what's called being in range, which is an acceptable range of numbers for one's blood sugars. When you get outside of that, if you get far too high for far too long, you run the risk of being in a coma, which of course is life-threatening. And if you go too low, you can have a seizure, which of course impacts the brain and as well can be life-threatening. And I keep thinking about that right now as the global temperatures rise, as we get multiple parts per million beyond the range that humanity and many other species were allowed to develop and flourish. What does that look like? What does that look like on a compromised planet? How do we bring those numbers home? And I think one way to do that is to locate it in a person's body. Mm. In your book, I was reading about the incident in which you were arrested protesting the Dakota Pipeline, and the first thing I thought of was, oh my gosh, he's got type 1 diabetes. Are they going to care for him in the jail to make sure that he doesn't have a too low or a too high blood sugar? And it takes a brave person to be willing to go to the front lines and risk being arrested when they have a life-threatening disease. It felt like what I had to do in many ways. I mean, getting arrested, as my friend Wendell Berry says, means that something's settled in your mind. I mean, it's dangerous to get arrested. People haven't done it. You really need to take time to think, is this something I'm willing to do? I mean, it follows you for your entire life, and things can turn out badly depending on the situation. But for me, you know, being a fossil fuel baby, having multiple generations of inheritance that were not as rich as the Rockefellers, of course, I also have four nephews who are dependent on the Missouri River for their drinking water, and I've been writing op-eds. I've been traveling around the country lecturing about this Bach and oil boom, trying to warn people, and it seemed nothing was working. And so there came this very real point in August of 2016 where I, along with 29 other people in Boone County, Iowa, stood in front of the construction site entrances and refused to move until the state troopers took us away. And then I took a six-hour vacation to the Boone County Jail, which was one of the shortest and most expensive vacations of my life. And didn't have access to my blood sugar monitor, though they allowed me to keep my insulin pump on my body. It hit home how risky and dangerous not only being arrested, but being in jail is, particularly if you're a disabled person. Mm. Taylor, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to direct our listeners to your website. It's taylorbrorby.com. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Taylor Broby, award-winning essayist and poet. He's the author of Fracture, Essays, Poems, and Stories on Fracking in America. His most recent book is Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Thank you so much for your time and for your work exposing this level of exploitation. Thanks for having me, Melinda.